Special Proceedings and Special Rates A special proceeding is a remedy by which a party seeks to establish a status, a right, or a particular fact. Special proceedings are non-adversarial in nature because there is no definite adverse party in such proceedings. It may become adversarial when there are oppositors to the petition. Settlement of the state of deceased persons, venue and process, Rule 73, Jurisdiction. If outside Metro Manila, MTC, if gross value of the state does not exceed 300,000, if it exceeds such value, then RTC. In Metro Manila, MTC, if gross value of the state does not exceed 400,000, otherwise RTC. Section 1 of Rule 73 refers to courts in the Philippines and simply means that once a special proceeding for the settlement of the estate of the decedent is filed in one of such court, that court has exclusive jurisdiction over the said estate, and no other special proceedings involving the same subject matter may be filed before any other court. These state proceedings take precedence over interstate proceedings of the same estate. Thus, if in the course of interstate proceedings pending before a court of first instance, it is found that the decedent had left a, uh, a last will and testament proceedings for the probate of the latter should replace the interstate proceedings, even if at that stage an administrator had already been appointed, the latter being required to render final account and turn over the estate in his possession to the executor subsequently appointed. This, however, is understood to be without prejudice that should the alleged will be rejected or is disapproved, the proceedings shall continue as an intestacy. A fair reading of the rule, since it deals with venue and committee between courts of equal and coordinate jurisdiction, indicates that the court with whom the petition is first filed must also first take cognizance of the settlement of the state in order to exercise jurisdiction over it to the exclusion of all other courts. Conversely, such court may, upon learning that a petition for probate of the decedent's last will has been presented in another court where the decedent obviously had his conjugal domicile and resided with his surviving widow and their minor children and that the allegation of the interstate petition before it stating that the decedent died in the state may be actually false, may decline, take cognizance of the petition, and hold the petitioner before, in, before it in abeyance and instead defer to the second court which has before it the petition for probate of the decedent's alleged last will. How to reconcile? If petitioner in the probate proceedings had prior knowledge prior to the filing of the interstate proceeding that an interstate proceeding was already pending, replace. If it was filed without knowledge of an existing interstate proceeding, hold in abeyance or defer. Extent of Jurisdiction of Probate Court The said court is primarily concerned with the administration, liquidation, and distribution of the state. The general law is that the jurisdiction of the trial court either as a probate court or an interstate court relates only to matters having to do with the probate of the will and or settlement of the estate of deceased persons, but does not extend to the determination of questions of ownership that arise during the proceeding. The patent rationale for this rule is that such court merely exercises special and limited jurisdiction. As held in several cases, a probate court or one in charge of estate proceedings, whether this state or in this state, cannot adjudicate or determine title to properties claimed to be a part of the estate and which are claimed to belong to outside parties, not by virtue of any right of inheritance from the deceased, but by the title adverse to that of the deceased and this state. 
All that said court could do as regards its properties is to determine whether or not they should be included in the inventory of properties to be administered by the administrator. If there is no dispute, there possess no problem. But if there is, then the parties, the administrator, and the opposing parties have to resort to an ordinary action before a court exercising general jurisdiction over a final determination of the conflicting claims of title. However, this general rule is subject to exceptions as justified by expediency and convenience. First, the probate court may provisionally pass upon in an interstate or artistic proceeding the question of inclusion in or exclusion from the inventory of piece of property without prejudice to final determination of ownership in a separate action. Second, if the interested parties are all heirs to the estate or the question is one of collation or advancement, or the parties consent to the assumption of jurisdiction by the probate court and the rights of third parties are not impaired, then the probate court is competent to resolve issues on ownership. Verily, its jurisdiction extends to matter incidental or collateral to the settlement and distribution of the estate, such as the determination of the status of its heir and whether the property in the inventory is conjugal or exclusive property of the deceased spouse. No need for prior and separate judicial declaration of heirship. Unless there is a pending special proceeding for the settlement of the decedent estate or for the determination of heirship, the compulsory or interstate heirs may commence an ordinary civil action to declare the nullity of deed or instrument and for recovery of property or any other action in the enforcement of their ownership rights acquired by virtue of succession without the necessity of a prior and separate judicial declaration of their status as such. Trias versus Larlar. It worth stressing that before this doctrine may be invoked, there should be at least some proof of relationship between the descendant and the heirs. Like the case of Trias, private respondents therein adduce birth certificates to prove their relation to the descendant. Hence, absent showing of some proof of relationship between the heirs and descendant, I submit that the doctrine in the Trias case finds no application. This ruling abandoned prior ruling which states that prior special proceeding for declaration of heirship is a prerequisite for the assertion by an heir or his or her ownership rights acquired by virtue of succession and under ordinary civil action. Reason To stress once more the successional rights of the legal heirs of Brucey are not merely contingent or expectant, they vest upon the death of the decedent. By being legal heirs, they are entitled to institute an action to protect their ownership rights acquired by virtue of succession and um, thus real parties in the interest in the instant case to delay the enforcement of such rights until heirship is determined with finality and a separate special proceeding would run counter to Article 777 of the Civil Code which recognizes the vesting of such rights immediately without a moment interruption upon the death of the decedent. Venue Inhabitant of the Philippines at the time of death, citizen or alien, court of the province where descendant resided at the time of death, inhabitant of a foreign country at the time of death, court of any province where descendant had a state. In the application of venue states and rules, residence rather than domicile is the significant factor. The word resides means personal, actor, or physical habitation of a person or his actual residence or place of abode. It does not mean legal residence or domicile. Improper venue. Once the court assumes jurisdiction, it shall not be contested so far as it depends on the decedent's place of residence or the location of the estate. 
as an exception, impropriety of uh, venue may be assailed only when the state proceedings are brought up on appeal or if a plain reading of the records of the case will immediately show that the venue was improperly laid. Venue is not jurisdictional and may be waived if only timely raised. The court finds and holds that the complaint cannot be dismissed on the ground of improper venue on the basis of Rule 73 because such rules refers exclusively to the special proceeding of settlement of estates and not to ordinary civil actions. Invoking Rule 73 to allege improper venue is entirely inconsistent with Petitioner Trias' assertion in the instant petition that the complaint is not a special proceeding but an ordinary civil action. Trias versus Larlar where is state settled upon dissolution of marriage? Section 2, Rule 73 provides that when the marriage is dissolved by the death of the husband or the wife, the community property shall be inventoried, administered, and liquidated, and the debts thereof paid in the estate or the intestate proceedings of the deceased spouse, and if both spouses have died, the conjugal partnership shall be liquidated in the intestate or intestate proceedings of either. In this settlement proceedings, the probate court has the authority to determine if the property is conjugal or community in nature for purposes of liquidation. A creditor cannot sue the surviving spouse of a decedent in an ordinary proceeding for the collection of a sum of money chargeable against the conjugal partnership and that the proper remedy is for him to file a claim in the settlement of the state of the decedent. Presumption of Death Section 4, Rule 73 is merely one of evidence which permits the court to presume that a person is dead after the fact that such person had been unheard prior and for the period fixed in the civil code. This presumption may arise and be invoked and made in a case, either in an action or in a special proceeding, which is tried or heard by and submitted for decision to a competent court. Independently of such an action or special proceeding, the presumption of death cannot be invoked nor can it be made the subject of an action or special proceeding. Summary Settlement of Estates Rule 74 The general rule is that when a person dies in the state or if the state failed to name an executor in his will or the executor or name, uh, name is incompetent or refuses the trust, or fails to furnish the bond equipped by the rules of court, then the descendant's estate shall be judicially administered, and the competent court shall appoint a qualified administrator, the order established in Section 6 of Rule 78 of the Rules of Court. An exception to this rule, law allows heirs to resort to one extrajudicial settlement of estate, or the descendants died in the state and left no debts. Section 1, Rule 74. Second, Summary Settlement of Estate. For estates of small value, when gross estate does not exceed 10,000 pesos, uh, 10, pe uh, pesos, recourse to an administration proceeding even if the estate has no debts is sanctioned only if the heirs have good reasons for not resorting to an action for partition. Where partition is possible, either in or out of court, the estate should not be burdened with an administration proceeding without good and compelling reasons. Extrajudicial uh, settlement by agreement between heirs. If the descendant left no will and no debts and the heirs are all of age, or the minors are represented by the judicial or legal representatives duly authorized for the purpose, the parties may, without securing letters of administration, divide the estate among themselves as they see fit means or by means of a public instrument filed in the office of the Register of Deeds. And should they disagree, they may do so in an ordinary action of partition. 
If there is only one heir, he may adjudicate to himself the entire estate by means of an affidavit filed in the office of the Register of Deeds. The parties to an extrajudicial settlement, whether by public instrument or by stipulation in a pending action for partition, or the sole heir who adjudicates the entire estate to himself by means of an affidavit shall file simultaneously with and as condition precedent to the filing of the public instrument or stipulation and action for partition or of the affidavit in the office of the Register of Deeds, a bond with the said Register of Deeds in an amount equivalent to the value of the personal property involved as certified to under oath by the parties concerned and conditioned upon the payment of any just claim that may be filed under Section 4 of this rule. It shall be presumed that the descendant left no debts if no creditor files a petition for uh, letters of administration within two years after the death of the decedent. The pack of the extrajudicial settlement or administration shall be published in a newspaper of general circulation in the manner provided in the next uh, succeeding section, but no extrajudicial settlement shall be binding upon any person who has not participated therein or had no notice thereof. Requisites for extrajudicial settlement before the heirs may avail themselves of this provision, the following requisites must be present. 1. Decedent died in the state or no will. If the decedent live a will, both substantive and procedural law mandates that the will be presented and admitted and probate and the estate be distributed in accordance with the decedent's wishes, the law enjoins the probate of the will and public policy requires it because unless the will is probated and notice thereof given to the whole world, the right of a person to dispose of his property by will may be rendered nugatory. Second, there is no outstanding debts at the time of settlement. It shall be presumed that the decedent left no debts if no creditor files a petition for letters of administration within two years after the death of the decedent. Third, heirs are of legal aids or minors represented by judicial guardians or legal representatives. Fourth, the settlement is made in a public instrument or by means of affidavit in case of sole heir duly filed with the register of deeds. The requirement that a, a partition be put in public document and registered has for its purpose the protection of creditors and at the same time the protection of the heirs themselves against tardy claims. The object of registration is to serve as constructive notice to others. It follows then that the intrinsic validity of partition not executed with the prescribed formalities does not come into play when there are no creditors or the rights of creditors are not affected. Where no such rights are involved, it is competent for the heirs of an estate to enter into an agreement for distribution in a manner and upon a plan different from those provided by law. There is nothing in such section from which it can be inferred that a writing or other formality is an essential requisite to the validity of the partition. Accordingly, an oral partition is valid. Fifth requirements is publication of extrajudicial settlement in newspaper of general circulation in the province once a week for three consecutive weeks and the procedure in outlined in Section 1 of Rule 74 is an ex parte proceeding. The rule plainly states, however, that persons who do not participate or had no notice of an extrajudicial settlement will not be bound thereby. It contemplates a notice that has been sent out or issued before any deal of settlement and or partition is agreed upon that is, no notice calling all interested parties to participate in the said deed of extrajudicial settlement and partition, and not after such an agreement has already been executed as what happened in the instant case with the publication of the first deed of extrajudicial settlement among heirs. 
the publication of the settlement does not constitute constructive notice to the heirs who had no knowledge or did not take part in because the same was noticed after the fact of execution. The requirement of publication is geared for the protection of creditors and was never intended to deprive heirs of their lawful participation in the descendant's estate. And the sixth requisite is filing of ban equivalent to value of personal property posted with Register of Deeds. Now, we go to summary settlement of estate of small value. Whenever the gross value of the estate of the deceased person, whether he died the state or in the state does not exceed 10,000 pesos, and that the fact is made to appear to the court of first instance having jurisdiction of the estate by the petition of an interested person and upon hearing, which shall be held not less than one month, not more than three months from the death, or from the date of the last publication by a notice, which shall be published once a week of three consecutive weeks in a newspaper of general circulation in the province, and after such other notice to interest person, as the court may direct, the court may proceed summarily without the appointment of an executor or administrator, and without delay to grant it a proper allowance of the will, if any there be, to determine who are the persons legally entitled to participate in the estate into a portion and divide it among them after the payment of such debts of the estate as the court shall then find to be due in such persons in their own right if they are so lawful aids and legal capacity or by their guardians or trustees legally appointed and qualified if otherwise shall thereupon be entitled to receive and enter into the possession of the portions of the estate so awarded to them respectively. Requisites are the complaint must allege that the gross value of the estate of the deceased does not exceed 10,000 pesos. Bond has been duly filed in an amount to be fixed by court if personal property is to be distributed, and the proper hearing is held not less than one month nor more than three months from a date of last publication of the notice. Now, let us distinguish extrajudicial settlement versus summary settlement of a state of small value. In this extrajudicial settlement, court intervention not required, while on the summary settlement, summary judicial adjudication needed. In extrajudicial settlement, decedent left no will, allowed only in a state succession, and decedent left no debts. In summary settlement, decedent may or may not have left a will or died in the state or the state. The decedent may have left debts. It is the court which will make provision of its payment. In extrajudicial settlement, it is instituted only at the instance and by agreement of all heirs, and the value of the state is immaterial, while in summary settlement, it may be instituted by any interested party, even by a creditor, without consent of the heirs, and the gross value of the estate must not exceed 10,000 pesos. Liability of distributives and estates It shall appear at any, uh, at any time within two years after the settlement and distribution of an estate in accordance with the provisions of either the first two sections of his rule that an heir or other person has been unduly deprived of his lawful participation in the estate. Such heir or such other person may compel the settlement of the estate in the courts in the manner and after provided for the purpose of satisfying such lawful participation. And if within the same time of two years it shall appear that there are debts outstanding against the estates, which have not been paid, or that an heir or other person has been unduly deprived of his lawful participation payable in money, the court having jurisdiction of the estate may, by order for that purpose, after hearing, settle the amount of such debts or lawful participation, and order how much and in what manner its distributee shall contribute in the payment thereof. 
and may issue execution if circumstances require against the man provided in the preceding section or against the real estate belonging to the deceased or both. Such bond and such real estate shall remain charged with a liability to creditors, heirs, or other persons for the full period of two years after such distribution, notwithstanding any transfers of real estate that may have been made. The prescriptive period stated under Section 4 applies only to persons who participated, took part in, or had notice of the settlement of the estate. Persons who did not participate in the extrajudicial or summary settlement of estate are not bound by this prescriptive period. Now, let's go to the remedies of aggrieved parties after settlement of estate. First, within two years, compel settlement of estate if an heir or other person has been duly deprived of his lawful participation in the estate or file a claim against the bond or the real estate or both if there are unpaid debts. Second, rescission in case of preterition of compulsory heir in partition tainted with bad faith. Third, action to annul a deed of extrajudicial settlement on the ground of fraud which should be filed within four years from the discovery of the fraud. Fourth, reconveyance of real property. If the two-year period has expired, one may file an action for reconveyance based on an implied trust. It is now well settled that the prescriptive period to recover property obtained by fraud or mistake, giving rise to an implied trust under Article 1456 of the Civil Code, is 10 years pursuant to Article 1144. This 10-year prescriptive period begins to run from the date the adverse party repudiates the implied trust which repudiation takes place when the adverse party registers the land. An action for reconveyance is imprescriptible when the plaintiff, the legal owner, and not the defendant registered owner is in possession of the land to be reconveyed. Reconveyance can no longer be availed of once the property has passed to an innocent purchaser for value. The aggrieved heirs may hence sue for damages against their co-heirs who have perpetuated the fraud. Period for claim of minor or incapacitated person. If on the date of the expiration of the period of two years prescribed in the preceding section, the person authorized to file a claim is a minor or mentally incapacitated or is in prison or outside the Philippines, he may present his claim within one year after such disability is removed. Allowance or disallowance of wills under Rule 76 Probate or allowance of will is the act of proving in court a document purporting to be the last will and testament of the deceased for the purpose of its official recognition, registration, and carrying out its provision insofar as they are in accordance with law. The action does not prescribe and cannot be barred by latches since it would be against public policy. It is settled that the law favors testacy over intestacy and hence the probate of the will cannot be dispensed with. Article 838 of the Civil Code provides that no will shall pass either real or personal property unless it is proved and allowed in accordance with the rules of court. Thus, unless the will is probated, the right of a person to dispose of his property may be rendered nugatory. In a similar way, testate proceedings for the settlement of the estate of the decedent takes precedence over intestate proceedings for the same purpose. The main issue which the court must determine in a probate proceeding is the due execution or the extrinsic validity, the legal formalities, testamentary capacity, due execution of the will as provided by Section 1, Rule 75 of the Rules of Court. The probate court cannot inquire into the intrinsic uh, validity of the will or the disposition of the estate by the testator. Thus, due execution is whether the testator being of sound mind freely executed the will in accordance with the formalities prescribed by law. Exceptions Waste of time, effort, expense, plus added anxiety. 
These are the practical considerations that induce the court to a belief that we might as well meet head-on the issue of the validity of the provisions of the will in question, or the probate of a will might become an idle ceremony if on its face it appears to be intrinsically void, where practical considerations demand that the intrinsic validity of the will be passed upon even before it is probated, the court should meet the issue. Who may petition for the allowance of will? Any executor, devisee, or legati name in a will, or any other person interested in the estate may at any time after the death of the testator petition the court having jurisdiction to have all the will allowed, whether the same be in his possession or not, or is loyal or destroyed. The testator himself may during his lifetime petition the court for the allowance of his will. An interested party is one who would be benefited by the estates as an heir or one who has a claim against the estates as a creditor. Publication of Notice When a will is delivered to or a petition for the allowance of a will is filed in the court having jurisdiction, such court shall fix a time and place for proving the will when all concerned may appear to contest the allowance thereof and shall cause notice of such time and place to be published three weeks successively previous to the time appointed in a newspaper of general circulation in the province. The probate of will is proceeding in REM and the publication provided by this rule is jurisdictional requirement. If the petition for probate is on the testator's own initiative during his lifetime, no publication requirement is necessary. Notice shall be made only to the compulsory heirs. Heirs, devices, legatis, and executors to be notified by the mail or personally. The court shall also cause copies of the notice of the time and place fixed for proving the will to be addressed to the designated or other known heirs, legatis, and devices of the testator resident in the Philippines at their places of residence. A copy of the notice must in like manner be mailed to the person named as executor if he be not the petitioner. Also to any person named as co-executor not petitioning if their places of residence be known. Under Section 4 of the Rule 76, personal notice <clears throat> must be either be deposited in the post office with the postage therein prepared at least 20 days before the hearing or personally serve at least 10 days before the day of hearing. Difference versus Section 3. Notable that Section 3 and 4 prescribe two modes of notification of the hearing. One, by publication in a newspaper of general circulation of the official gazette and two, by personal notice to the designated or non-ears, legatis, and devices. Under Section 3, publication of the notice of hearing shall be done upon the delivery of the will or filing of the petition for allowance of the will in court having jurisdiction. On the other hand, personal notice under Section 4 shall be served to the designated or, nor in or known heirs, legatis, and devices, and executor or co-executor at their residence if such are known. Personal notice to the heirs whose places of uh, residence are known is mandatory. Trial courts cannot simply abdicate their duty under Section 4, Rule 76 by indiscriminately applying the rule on publication to those who would render negatory the procedure laid down in Section 4 and the purpose of which it was intended. Case uh, GR number 237133. Now, evidence required in support of a will. If it is an uncontested will, notarial will. The testimony of at least one subscribing witness that will uh, that the will was executed as required by law. If all subscribing witnesses reside outside of the province but their deposition can be taken elsewhere, the court may on motion order that it be taken and may authorize making a photocopy of the will to be presented to witness. If all subscribing witnesses are dead, 
insane or do not reside in the Philippines, other witness or witnesses not subscribe, subscribing may be presented. On case of holographic wills, at least one witness who knows the handwriting and the signature of the testator who explicitly declares that the will and signature are in the handwriting of the testator or in the absence of such competent witness in the court deems if necessary, expert testimony may be resorted to. It is not mandatory that witnesses be presented first before expert testimony may be resorted to unlike in notarial wills wherein attesting witnesses must first be presented. If the testator himself petitions for probate of a holographic will and it is not contested, the fact that he affirms that the holographic will and the signature are in his own handwriting shall be sufficient evidence of genuineness and due execution thereof. While on the other hand, if the will is contested or we call it contested will, Anyone appearing to contest the will must state in writing his grounds for opposing its allowance and serve a copy to petitioner and other interested parties. In case of notarial wills, all subscribing witness and the notary, if present in the Philippines and not insane, must be presented. If dead, insane or absent, said fact must be satisfactorily shown in court. If present in the Philippines but outside the province, the position must be taken. If any or all of them testify against the due execution of the will or do not remember having attested to it or are otherwise of doubtful credibility, the will may nevertheless be allowed if the court is satisfied from the testimony of other witnesses and from all the evidence presented that the will was executed and attested in the manner required by law. On the case of uh, holographic wills, on the other hand, if a holographic will is contested, the same shall be allowed if at least three witnesses who know the handwriting of the testator explicitly declare that the will and the signature are in the handwriting of the testator in the absence of any competent witnesses and if the court deem it necessary, expert testimony may be resorted to. Now, what is the proof of lost or destroyed will? No will shall be proved as a lost or destroyed will unless the execution and validity of the same be established and the will is proved to have been in existence at the time of the death of the testator or is shown to have been prudently or accidentally destroyed in the lifetime of the testator without uh, his knowledge nor unless its provision are clearly and distinctly proved by at least two credible witnesses. If the holographic will has been lost or destroyed and no other copy is available, the will cannot be probated because the best and only evidence is the handwriting of the testator in said will. It is necessary that there be a comparison between sample handwritten statements of the testator and the handwritten will. But a photostatic copy or Xerox copy of the holographic will may be allowed because comparison can be made with the standard writings of the testator. Now, Disallowance of a will. The will shall be disallowed in any of the following cases. 1. Legal formalities, if not executed and attested as required by law. 2. Testamentary capacity, if the testator was insane or otherwise mentally incapable to make a will at the time of its execution. 3. Due execution, if it was executed under duress or the influence of fear or threats. If it was procured by undue and proper pressure and influence on the part of the beneficiary or of some other person for his benefit. If the signature of the testator was procured by fraud or trick and he did not intend that the instrument should be his will at the time of fixing his signature thereto, the list above is exclusive. 
claims against the estate. Rule 86. Purpose. The filing of an money claim against the descendant estate in the probate court is mandatory. This requirement is for the purpose of protecting the estate of the deceased by informing the executor or administrator of the claim against it, thus enabling him to examine its claim and to determine whether it is a proper one which should be allowed. The plain and obvious design of the rule is the speedy settlement of the affairs of the deceased and the early delivery of the property to the distributors, legatis, or heirs. The law strictly requires the prompt presentation and disposition of the claims against the decedent estate in order to settle the affairs of the estate as soon as possible, pay off its debts, and distribute the residue. Notice to Creditors Immediately after granting letters testamentary or for or of administration, the court shall issue a notice requiring all persons having money claims against the decedent to file them in the office of the clerk of said court, types of claims that may be filed. Only money claims against the decedent are allowed under Rule 86, but only those contracted before the decedent's date may be brought under Rule 86, time within which claims shall be filed. Claims must be filed within the time specified by the court in its notice, which shall not be less than 6 months, not more than 12 months from the date of the first publication of the notice. Exception or the billeted claims. The court has discretion for costs and upon such terms as are equitable to allow contingent claims presented beyond the period previously fixed, provided they are filed within one month from the expiration of such period, but in no case beyond the date of entry of the order of distribution. The one-month extension does not uh, commence from expiration of the original period for filing claims, but from the date of the order of the court allowing said filing. Answer by executor or administrator. Within 15 days after service of a copy of the claim on the executor or administrator, he shall file his answer admitting or denying the claim specifically and setting forth the admission of or denial. If he has no knowledge sufficient to enable him to admit or deny specifically, he shall state such want of knowledge. The executor or administrator in his answer shall allege in offset any claim which the decedent before death had against the claimant in his failure to do so shall bar the claim forever. Notice to creditors to be published. Executor administrator shall immediately after the notice to creditors is issued cause publication of notice for three weeks successively in a newspaper of general circulation in the province and its posting in four public places in the province and two in public places in the municipality where the descendant last resided. Publication of notice is constructive notice to creditors and thus a creditor will not be permitted to file a claim beyond the period fixed in the notice on the bare grounds that he had no knowledge of the administration proceedings. Statute of Non-Claims All claims for money against the descendant arising from contract, express or implied whether the same be due, not due or contingent. All claims for funeral expenses and expense for the last sickness of the descendant in judgment for money against the descendant must be filed within the time limited in the notice, not be less than 6 months, not more than 12 months from the date of the first publication of the notice, otherwise they are barred forever. Even if a claim has not yet prescribed under the statute of limitations, if such claim is not made with the probate court within the time set for in a notice, the creditor may no longer collect because of the statute of non-claims. In other words, the statute of non-claims effectively shortens the statute of limitations as regards the right of action to pursue the debtor is concerned. Still, before a creditor may go against the estate, the claim must both be within the statute of limitations and statute of non-claims. In short, the statute of limitation and non-claims must both concur before a creditor may collect against the estate. 
Exceptions. There are two exceptions to the statute of non-claims. The creditor may apply with the court for a new period not exceeding one month from the order allowing the same for just cause in accordance with Rule 86. Or, the creditor may set up his claim as a counterclaim in an action filed by the executor or administrator against him in accordance with Rule 86, Section 5. Quasi-contracts and contingent claims are included in claims that should be filed under Rule 86, Section 5. Judgment for money. When judgment in a civil case has become final and executory, execution is not proper remedy to enforce payment. The claimant should present the claim before the probate court. Note that the property divided upon in case the judgment debtor dies after the entry of judgment, as in the case may be sold for the satisfaction of the judgment in case that occurs after execution is actually divided. On the other hand, Section 5 of Rule 86 provides that a judgment for money against the decedent must be filed with the court in the proceeding for the settlement of the estate. In other words, the cut-off date is the date of actual levy of execution. If the judgment debtor dies after such levy, the property levied upon may be sold. If before, the money judgment must be presented as a claim against the estate, although, of course, the same need no longer be proved, the judgment itself being conclusive. But the judgment creditor will share the estate with other creditors subject only to such preferences as are provided by law. Solidary Obligation of Decedent where the obligation of the decedent is solidary with another debtor, the claim shall be filed against the decedent as if he were the only debtor, without prejudice to the right of the estate to recover contribution from the debtor. In a joint obligation of the decedent, the claim shall be confined to the portion belonging to him. A cursory perusal of Section 6 of Rule 86 uh, reveals that nothing therein prevents a creditor from proceeding against the surviving solidary debtors. Said provision merely sets up the procedure in enforcing collection in case a creditor chooses to pursue his claim against the estate of the deceased solidary debtor. The rule has been set forth that a creditor in a solidary obligation has the option whether to file or not to file a claim against the estate of the solidary debtor. Alternative remedies of a mortgage creditor upon debt of debtor. Creditor holding a claim against the deceased secured by mortgage or other collateral security has three options. One, to waive the mortgage and claim the entire debt from the estate of the mortgagor as an ordinary claim. Second, to foreclose the mortgage judicially and prove any deficiency as an ordinary claim. And third, to rely on the mortgage exclusively foreclosing the same at any time before it is barred by prescription without right to file a claim for any deficiency. It must, however, be emphasized that these remedies are distinct, independent, and mutually exclusive from its other does the election of one effectively bars the exercise of the others claim of executor or administrator against an estate if the executor or administrator has a claim against the estate he represents, he shall give notice thereof in writing to the court, and the court shall appoint a special administrator who shall, in the adjustment of such claim, have the same power and be subject to the same liability as the general administrator or executor in the settlement of other claims. The court may order the executor or administrator to pay to the special administrator necessary funds to defend such claim. Now, Payment of the debts of the estate under Rule 88 and sales mortgages and other encumbrances of property of descendant under Rule 89. Debts paid in full in estate sufficient. If after hearing all the money claims against the estate and after ascertaining the amount of such claims, it appears that there are sufficient assets to pay the debts, the executor or administrator pay the same within the time limited for the purpose. Order of preference for payment of debts. 1. Portion of property designated in the will. 
A. If the state makes provision by will or designates a state for the payment of debts, expenses of administration or family expenses, this shall be paid according to such provision. B. If not sufficient, part of the estate not disposed of by the will shall be appropriated. Second, personal property. And third, real property. If there is still a deficiency, the debt shall be satisfied through the contributive shares of the devices, legatis, or heirs who have been in possession of portion of the estate before debts and expenses have been settled and paid. Personality first, chargeable for debts, then realty. Personal estate not disposed of by will shall be first chargeable. Exceptions when realty charged first, when the sale of personal property is insufficient, when its sale will redound to the detriment of the participants for the estate, when its sale may injure the business of other interests of those interested in the estate, when the testator has not made sufficient provision for payment of such debts, expenses, and legacies, five, when the decedent was in his lifetime under contract binding in law to deal or to deal real property or an interest therein to beneficiary, when the decedent during his lifetime held real property in trust for another. Requisites before any of the exceptions apply. 1. The executor or administrator makes an application with the court. 2. Written notice is given to the persons interested. And 3. Hearing by the court. Note. However, Section 8 should be differentiated from Section 2 and 4 of Rule 89, specifically requiring only the executor or administrator to file the application for authority to sell, mortgage, or otherwise encumber real estate for the purpose of paying debts, expenses, and legacies, or for authority to sell real or personal estate, beneficial to the heirs, devices, or legatis, and other interested persons, although such authority is not necessary to pay debts, legacies, or expenses of administration. Section 8, Rule 89 mentions only the unapplicable to authorize the conveyance of realty under a contract that the deceased entered into a while still alive. The proper party is one who is to be benefited or injured by the judgment or one who is to be entitled to the avails of the suit. The disposal of estate property requires judicial approval before it should be executed. Implicit in the requirement for judicial approval was the double probate court could rescind or nullify the disposition of a property under administration that was affected without its authority sale beneficial to interested persons. Upon application of the executor or administrator and on written routes to the heirs, devices, and legatis, the court may authorize the sale of the whole or part of the real or personal estate when beneficial to the heirs, although not necessary to pay debts, legacies, or expenses of administration. Proceeds derived from the sale shall be assigned to the persons entitled to estate in the proper proportions, but the authority will not be granted if inconsistent with the provisions of a will. Sale, mortgage, or other encumbrance of realty acquired on execution or foreclosure. The court may authorize an executor or administrator to sale, mortgage, or otherwise encumber the real estate acquired by him on execution or foreclosure sale under the same circumstances and under the same corrugations as prescribed in this rule. Under Section 7, Rule 89, only the executor or administrator of the estate may be authorized by the interstate court to mortgage real estate belonging to the estate. Thus, the order of the estate court authorizing the or a court authorizing the heirs to mortgage the reality of the estate is a nullity. Settled is the rule that when an order authorizing the sale or encumbrance of real property was issued by the T-State or interstate court without previous notice to the heirs, devices, and legatis as required by the rules, it is not only the contract itself which is null and void but also the order of the court authorizing the same. Deed of sale, court case, or encumbrance. The dead executed by the executor or administrator shall be valid as 
if executed by the deceased in his lifetime for sales contracted by the deceased during his lifetime, Section 8 of Rule 89 applies. In such cases, the court, having jurisdiction of the estate, may, and on application of, for that purpose, authorize the executor or administrator to convey such property according to such contract or with such modifications as are agreed upon by the parties and approved by the court. Court approval is required in any disposition of the descendant's estate per Rule 89. Reference to judicial approval, however, cannot adversely affect the substantive rights of heirs to dispose of their own pro indiviso shares in the co-heirship or co-ownership. In other words, they can sell the rights, interest, or participation in the property under administration. Note, Section 8, Rule 89 presupposes a pending probate or administration proceeding for the state or interstate estate of a decedent. The heirs of Corazon have not initiated a special proceeding for the settlement of their estate where an administrator has been appointed. Without such special proceeding, respondents are not inquired to make an application to authorize the administrator to convey the subject properties according to the contracts that Corazon entered into but was unable to execute due to her death. The court agrees with the CA that petitioner's invocation of Section 8 Rule 89 is misplaced because the section presupposes that there is no controversy as to the contract contemplated therein, and if objections obtained, the remedy, or the remedy of the person seeking the execution of the contract is an ordinary and separate action to compel the same. This is so given that, as correctly observed by the CA, subject to settled exceptions not present in the instant three cases, the court does not extend the jurisdiction of a prostate court to the determination of questions of ownership, and similarly, a court of administration proceedings cannot determine questions which arise as the to the ownership of property alleged to be part of the decedent estate but claimed by some other person to be his or her property, not by virtue of any right of any returns from the descendant, but by the title adverse to that of the descendant and the latter's estate. The institution by respondents of the action for specific performance was thus the proper recourse because petitioners dispute the validity of the con conveyances over the contested properties, heirs of Corazon Villesa versus Aliangan. Oppositor may prevent sale by giving bond. The authority to sell, mortgage, or otherwise encumber real or personal estate shall not be granted if any person interested in the estate gives a bond in a sum fixed by the court. Such bond is conditioned to pay the debts, expenses of administration, and legacies within such time as the court directs. And such bond shall be for the security of the creditors as well as of the executor or administrator and may be prosecuted for the benefits of either. Contingent claims. If the court is satisfied that the contingent claim duly filed is valid, it may order the executor or administrator to retain in his hands sufficient estate to pay such contingent claim. When the same becomes absolute or if the estate is insolvent, sufficient to pay a portion equal to the dividend of the other creditors. Payment of contingent claim. If claim becomes absolute within two years limited for creditors and allowed by the court, creditors shall receive payment to the same extent as to other creditors if state retained by executor or administrator is sufficient. Claim not presented after becoming absolute within two years period and allowed by the court, assets retained after claims have been paid shall be distributed to persons entitled by court order, but assets already distributed may still be applied to the payment of the established claim and the creditor may maintain an action against the distributees to recover the debt and such distributees and their estates shall be liable for the debt in proportion to the estate they have respectively received from property of disease. 
As to contingent claims which mature after the two-year period of filing claims, the assets retained in the hands of the executor or administrator not exhausted in the payment of claims shall be distributed by other or order of the court to the persons entitled to the same. Nevertheless, the assets so distributed must be applied to the payment of the claim when established and the creditor may maintain an action against the distributes to recover the debt. Liability of heirs and distributes Heirs are not required to respond with their own property for the deaths of their deceased ancestors, but after partition of an estate, the heirs and distributees are liable individually for the payment of all lawful uh, outstanding claims against the estate in proportion to the amount or value of the property they have respectively received from the estate. Insolvent decedent. If the assets which can be appropriated for the payment of debts are not sufficient for the purpose, the executor or administrator shall pay the debts against the estate, observing the previous of Articles 1059 and 2239 of the Civil Code. Dividends to be paid in proportion to claims. If assets are not sufficient to pay credits or any one of creditors after paying preferred credits, its creditor within such class shall be paid a dividend in proportion to his claim. No creditor of any class shall receive any payment until those of the preceding class are paid. Insolvent non-resident. His estate pound in Philippines shall be so disposed of in a manner that will ensure that his creditors here and elsewhere may receive its unequal share in proportion of their respective credits. Insolvent resident with parent creditors and parent claims proven in another country. If the executor or administrator in the Philippines had knowledge of the presentation of such claims in such country and an opportunity to contest their allowance, the court shall receive a certified list of such claims when perfected in such country and add the same to the list of claims proved against the deceased person in the Philippines so that a just distribution of the whole state may be made equally among all its creditors according to their respective claims. Principle of Reciprocity The benefits of this and preceding section shall not be extended to creditors in another country if property of the deceased their pound is not equally apportioned to creditors residing in Philippines and other creditors accounting to their respective or according to their respective claims. Order of Payment of Debts Before the expiration of the time limited by the payment of the debts, the court shall order the payment thereof and the distribution of the estates received by the executor or administrator for that purpose among the creditors as the circumstances of the estate require in accordance with the provision of this rule. If appeal taken from a decision by the court concerning a claim, uh, an appeal has been taken from a decision of the court concerning a claim, the court may suspend the order for the payment of the debts or may order the distribution among the creditors whose claims are definitely allowed, leaving in the hands of the executor or administrator sufficient assets to pay the claim disputed and appealed. When a disputed claim is finally settled, the court having jurisdiction of the estate shall order the same to be paid out of the assets retained to the same extent and in the same proportion with the claims of other creditors. When subsequent distribution of assets ordered, if the whole of the debts are not paid on the first distribution and if the whole assets are not distributed or other assets afterwards come to the hands of the executor or administrator, the court may from time to time make further order for the distribution of assets. Time for paying debts and legacies. 
On granting letters to cemetery or administration, the court shall allow to the executor or administrator a time for disposing of the estate and paying the debts and legacies of the deceased, which shall not in the first instance exceed one year. But the court may, on application of the executor or administrator, and after hearing on such notice of the time and place, therefore given to all persons interested as it shall direct, extend the time as the circumstances of the estate require, not exceeding six months for a single extension, not so that the whole period allowed to the original executor or administrator shall exceed two years. When an executor or administrator dies and a new administrator of the same estate is appointed, the court may extend the time allowed for the payment of the debts or legacies beyond the time allowed to the original executor or administrator, not exceeding six months at a time and not exceeding six months beyond the time which the court might have allowed to such original executor or administrator and notice shall be given of the time and the place for hearing such application as required in the last preceding section. Writ of Execution The probate court does not have the power to issue writs of execution. A writ of execution is not the proper procedure for the payment of debts and expenses of administration. The proper procedure is for the court to order the sale of personal estate or the sale of mortgage of real property of the deceased and all debts or expenses of administration should be paid out of the proceeds of the sale or mortgage. Exception to satisfy the distributive shares of devices, legatis, and heirs in possession of the decedent's assets, or to enforce payment of expenses of the partition, or to satisfy the cost when a person is cited for examination in probate proceedings. Distribution and Partition Rule 90 In settlement of estate proceedings, the distribution of the estate properties can only be made. 1. After all the debts, funeral charges, expenses of administration, allowance to the widow, and estate tax have been paid, or 2. Before payment of said obligations, only if the distributees of any of them gives a bond in a sum fixed by the court a condition upon the payment of said obligations within such time as the court directs or when provision is made to meet those obligations. After the foregoing payments are made, the residue may be distributed to those entitled thereto. The practice in the distribution of the estate of deceased persons is to assign the whole of the estate left for distribution among the heirs in definite proportions on aliquot part pertaining to each of the heirs. If there is a controversy as to our lawful heirs, such shall be heard and decided as in ordinary cases. Two stages before there could be a distribution of the debt estate. The following stages must be followed. 1. Liquidation refers to determination of all assets of the estate and payment of all debts and expenses. And declaration of heirs. It is done to determine to whom the residue of the estate should be distributed. The declaration is made in the same proceeding. Project of Partition a project of partition is merely a proposal for the distribution of the retired estate which the court may accept or reject. The probate court loses the restriction of an estate under administration only after the payment of all the debts and the remaining estate delivered to the heirs entitled to receive the same. The finality of the approval of the project of partition by itself alone does not terminate the probate proceedings as long as the order of the distribution of the estate has not been complied with. The probate proceedings cannot be deemed closed and terminated. Advanced Distribution of Estate The second paragraph of Section 1 of Rule 90 allows the distribution of the estate prior to the payment of the obligations mentioned therein, provided that the distributees or any of them gives a bond in a sum to be fixed by the court condition for the payment of set obligations within such time as the court directs. In sum, although it is within the discretion of the RTC whether or not to permit the advanced distribution of the estate, its exercise of such discretion should be qualified by the following. 
One only part of the state that is not affected by any pending controversy or appeal may be the subject of advanced distribution. 2. The distributees must post a bond fixed by the court condition for the payment of outstanding obligations of the state. Effect of final decree of distribution. A final decree of distribution of the estate of the deceased person vests the title to the land of the estate in that distributees. If the decree is erroneous, it should be corrected by opportune appeal, for once it becomes final, its binding effect is like any other judgment and rem unless property set aside for lack of jurisdiction or fraud. Where the court has validly issued the decree of distribution and the same has become final, the validity or immediately of the project of partition becomes irrelevant. The only instance where a party interested in probate proceedings may have a final liquidation set aside is when he is left out by reason of circumstances beyond his control or through mistake or inadvertence not imputable to negligence. Even then, the better practice to secure relief is reopening the same case by proper motion within the reglementary period instead of an independent action, the effect of which is successful would be, as in the instant case, for another court or judge to throw out a decision or order already final and executed and reshuffled properties along, go, uh, along ago distributed and disposed of. Remedy of an heir entitled to residue but not given his share. The better practice for the heir who has not received his share is to 1. Demand the share through proper motion in the same probate or administrative proceedings or 2. Motion for reopening of the probate or administrative proceedings if it had already been closed and not through an independent action. But where special proceedings had been instituted but had been finally closed and terminated, however, or if a putative heir has lost the right to have himself declared in a special proceeding as co-heir, and he can no longer ask for its reopening, then an ordinary civil action can be filed for his declaration as heir in order to bring about the annulment of the partition or distribution or adjudication of the property or properties belonging to the estate of the deceased. Instances when probate court may issue writ of execution as a rule, writ of execution is not allowed in probate proceedings exceptions. A. To satisfy the contributive shares of devices, legatis, and heirs in possession of the descendants' assets. B. To enforce payment of expenses of partition. And C. To satisfy the cost when a person is cited for examination in probate proceedings. SG Rule 91 SG is a proceeding where the real and personal property of a person deceased in Philippines who dies without leaving any will and without any legal heirs becomes the property of the state. Basis, it is an incident or attribute of sovereignty and rest on the principle of ultimate ownership by the estate of all property within its jurisdiction. Escheat proceedings are actions in REM whereby an action is brought against the thing itself instead of the person. Thus, an action may be instituted and carried to judgment without personal service upon the depositors or other claimants. Jurisdiction is secured with the power of the court over the rest. Consequently, as judgment of escheat is conclusive upon persons notified by advertisement as publication is considered a general and constructive notice to all persons interested. A judgment in state proceedings when rendered by a court of competent jurisdiction is conclusive against all persons with actual or constructive notice but not against those who are not parties or privies thereto. Requisites A person has died in the state. He has left properties in the Philippines. He has left no heirs or persons entitled to the same. Three kinds of state. When a person dies, is the state living property in the Philippines, leaving no heir? 
Second, reversion proceedings and alienations in violation of constitution or other statute. An action for reversion or estate or lands sold to aliens disqualified from acquiring lands under the constitution may be initiated by the Office of the Solicitor General, however, where the transferee are Filipino citizens, estate proceedings can no longer be pressed for third. And Claim Balances, Act Number 3936, as amended by PD 679, the dormant accounts for 10 years shall be cheated. Where filed? If resident, RTC of the province where the deceased last is resided. If non-resident, RTC of the place where his estate is located. Actions for reversion or estate of properties alienated in violation of the Constitution or any stat uh, statute, in province where ang the the bin, the, bin, the it is it is filed in province where land lies in a wall or in part for unclaimed balances rtc of the province or city where the bank building loan association or trust corporation is located whom file is cheat proceeding must be initiated by the solicitor general all interested parties especially the actual occupant and the adjacent land owner shall be personally notified of the proceedings and given the opportunity to present their valid claims otherwise the property will be reverted to the state interested party is any person alleging to have a direct right or interest in the property sought to be cheated notice and publication if the petition is sufficient in form and substance, the court by an order reciting the purpose of the petition shall fix a date and place for the hearing hereof, which date shall be not more than six months after the entry of the order, and shall direct that a copy of the order be published before the hearing at least once a week for six consecutive weeks in some newspaper of general circulation published in the province. Publication of the notice of hearing is a jurisdictional requisite, non-compliance with which affects the ability of the proceedings. Property distribution. The property is cheated will be assigned as follows. A. A personal property to the municipality or city where the deceased last resided. B. A real property to the municipalities or cities respectively in which the same is situated. C. If the deceased never resided in the Philippines, whole state may be assigned to the respective municipalities or cities where the same is located. Such states shall be for the benefit of public schools and public charitable uh, institutions and centers in said municipalities or cities. State proceeding cannot be converted into settlement of uh, state waiver. The right to state claim by the municipality has existed long prior to the registration proceedings instituted by the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Manila and as the same has not been asserted in said proceedings, it is deemed to have been completely waived. Piling of claim to state If ad advice or device legati, heir, widow, widower, or other person entitled to such estates appears and files a claim thereto with the court within five years from the date of such judgment, such person shall have possession of entitled to the same, or if sold, the municipality or city shall be accountable to him for the proceeds after deducting reasonable charges for the care of the estate, but a claim not made within the same time shall be forever barred five years from the date of judgment. It is decidedly prescribed to encourage would-be claimants to be punctilious uh, in a certain place, otherwise they may lose from forever in a final judgment. Where a person comes into an estate proceeding as a claimant, the burden in such such intervenor to establish his title to the property and his right to intervene. Remedies of ear if government uh, initiates estate. 1. Participate in the proceeding. File a written opposition or comment. 2. File a motion to dismiss and 3. File a petition for annulment of judgment. Venue. Rule 92. 
venue and jurisdiction. For resident incompetent, the RTC where the incompetent resides depending on the value of the state. For non-resident incompetent, RTC where the incompetent property of a partner office is situated. Resident minor, family court of the province or city where the minor actually resides. And for non-resident minor, family court of the province or city where his property or any partner office is situated. Who are incompetent persons? Under this rule, the word incompetent includes persons suffering the penalty of civil interdiction or who are hospitalized leapers, prodigals, deaf and dumb, who are unable to read and write, those who are uh, of unsound mind even though they have lucid intervals, and persons not being of unsound mind but by reason of AIDS, disease, weak mind, and other similar causes cannot without outside aid take care of themselves and manage their property becoming thereby an easy prey for deceit and exploitation. A finding that a person is incompetent should be anchored on clear, positive, and definitive evidence where the sanity of a person is as its you. Expert opinion is not necessary and that the observations of the trial judge coupled with evidence establishing the person's state of mental sanity will suffice. Appointments of Guardians Rule 93 the objectives of hearing on a petition for appointment of a guardian under Rule 93 is for the court to determine a. Whether a person is indeed a minor or an incompetent who has no capacity to care for himself and or his properties. And B. Who is most qualified to be appointed as his guardian. Whom file? Any relative, friend, or other person on behalf of a resident incompetent who has no parent or lawful guardian may petition the court having jurisdiction for the appointment of a general guardian for the person or estate or both of such incompetent. Factors to be considered. Having in mind that guardianship proceeding is instituted for the benefit and welfare of the ward, the selection of a guardian must therefore suit this very purpose. Thus, in determining the selection of a guardian, the court may consider the financial situation, the fiscal condition, the sound judgment, prudence and trustworthiness, the morals, character and conduct, and the present and past history of a prospective appointee, as well as the probability of his being able to exercise the powers and duties of guardian for the full period during which guardianship will be necessary. Incompetent guardian. A guardian is or becomes incompetent to serve the trust if he is so disqualified by mental incapacity, conviction of crime, moral delinquency, or physical disability as to be prevented from properly discharging the duties of his office. Notice of application and hearing. When a petition for the appointment of a general guardian is filed, the court shall fix a time and place for hearing the same and shall cause reasonable notice thereof to be given to the persons mentioned in the petition residing in the province including the minor if above 14 years of age or the incompetent himself and may direct other general or special notice thereof to be given. No publication is required except for non-resident incompetent. Creditors of the minor or the incompetent need not be identified or notified. This is because their presence is not essential to the proceedings for appointment of a guardian. Opposition to petition. Any interested person may be filing a written opposition contest the petition on the ground of competency of the alleged incompetent or the insuitability of the person for whom letters are prayed. Guardians for non-resident. 
when a person liable to be put under guardianship resides without the Philippines but the state therein, any relative or friend of such person or anyone interested in his state in expectancy or otherwise may petition a court having jurisdiction for the appointment of a guardian for the state. And if after notice given to such person and in such manner as the court deemed proper, by publication or otherwise, and hearing the court is satisfied that such non-resident is a minor or incompetent rendering a guardian necessary or convenient, it may appoint a guardian for such state. General Powers and Duties of Guardians General Powers and Duties of Guardians Rule 96 a guardian appointed shall have the care and custody of the person of his ward and the management of his estate, or the management of the estate only, as the case may be. The guardian of the estate of non-resident shall have the management of all the estate of the ward within the Philippines. Specific Duties 1. To pay just debts of ward out of a personal estate and income of his real estate of the ward, if is not sufficient, real property of ward upon obtaining an order for its sale or encumbrance. 2. To settle all accounts of his ward. 3. To demand, sue, for, and receive all debts due him or with the approval of the court compound for the same and give discharges to the author on receiving a fair and just dividend of his state and effects. 4. To appear for and represent the ward in all actions and special proceedings unless another person is appointed for that purpose. 5. To manage property of ward frugally and without waste and apply income and profits thereon insofar as may be necessary to comfortable and suitable maintenance of a ward and his family. If such income and profits be insufficient for that purpose, to sell or encumber the real estate upon being authorized by the court to do so and apply proceeds to such maintenance. For to assent to partition of real or personal property owned by the ward, jointly or in common with others upon authority granted by the court. After hearing... Notice to relatives of ward and careful investigation as to the necessity and propriety of proposed action. 7. To submit the court a verified sworn inventory of the property of the ward within three months after appointment and after the discovery, succession, or acquisition of property of the ward not included in the inventory and annually. 8. To render sworn account to court for settlement and allowance annually after appointment which may be compelled upon application of an interested person as often as may be required after one year from appointment. The right to manage the ward's estate carries with it the right to take possession thereof and recover it from anyone who retains it and bring and defend such action as may be needed or needful for this purpose. As a general rule, a guardianship has no power to order the person suspected of embezzling or concealing property of the ward to deliver the same to the court. A guardianship court only has the power to cite such persons to obtain information on the property. Purpose of the proceeding is to secure evidence from persons suspected of embezzling, concealing, or conveying any property of the ward so as to enable the guardian to institute the appropriate action to obtain the possession of and secure title of said property. The court can neither determine ownership of the property claim to belong to the ward nor order its delivery. However, the court may direct delivery of property to the guardian only in extreme cases where the right or title of the ward is clear and indisputable or where his title thereto has already been judicially decided. Termination of Guardianship Rule 97 Who may file? A person who has been declared incompetent for any reason or his guardian relative or friend may petition the court to have his present competency judicially determined. The petition shall be verified by oath and shall state that such person is then uh, competent. 
Upon receiving the petition, the court shall fix a time for hearing the questions raised thereby and cause reasonable notice thereof to be given to the guardian of the person so declared incompetent and to the ward. On the trial, the guardian or relatives of the ward and in the discretion of the court, any other person may contest the right to the relief demanded and witnesses may be called and examined by the parties or by the court on its own motion. If it be found that the person is no longer incompetent, his competency shall be adjudged and the guardianship shall cease. Where to file? The court who appointed the guardian, it is merely a continuation of the guardianship proceedings. Removal of guardianship. When a guardian becomes insane or otherwise incapable of discharging his trust or unsuitable therefore or has wasted or mismanaged the estate or failed for 30 days after his or after it is due to render an account or make a return, the court may upon reasonable notice to the guardian remove him and compel him to surrender the estate of the ward to the person found to be lawfully entitled thereto. A guardian may resign when it appears proper to allow the same and upon his resignation or removal, the court may appoint another in this or in his place. Conflict of interest is sufficient ground for the removal of a guardian or the logic that antagonistic interest would render a guardian unsuitable for the trust. The guardian of any person may be discharged by the court when it appears upon the application of the ward or otherwise that the guardianship is no longer necessary. Writ of Abias Corpus Rule 102 The high prerogative writ of Abias Corpus is a speedy and effectual remedy to relieve persons from an awful restraint. It secures to a prisoner the right to have the cause of his detention examined and determined by a court of justice and to have it ascertained whether he is held under lawful authority. The writ of Abias Corpus is a high prerogative writ which furnishes an extraordinary remedy. It may thus be invoked only under extraordinary circumstances. Nature. Abias corpus is a summary remedy. It is analogous to a proceeding and rem when instituted for the sole purpose of having the person of restraint presented before the judge in order that the cause of his detention may be inquired into and his statements final. The writ of abias corpus does not act upon the prisoner who seeks relief but upon the person who holds him in what is alleged to be the unlawful authority. Hence, the only parties before the court are the petitioner or the prisoner and the person holding the petitioner in custody and the only question to be resolved is whether the custodian has authority to deprive the petitioner of his liberty. Not a matter of right. A writ of habeas corpus which is regarded as a palliadum of liberty or palladium of liberty is a prerogative writ which does not issue as a matter of right but in the sound discretion of the court or judge. It is however a writ of right on proper formalities being made by proof. Resort to the writ is to inquire into the criminal act of which a complaint is made, but unto the right of liberty, notwithstanding the act, and the immediate purpose to be served is relieved from illegal restraint. The primary, if not the only object of the writ of habeas corpus ad subjusiendum is to determine the legality of the restraint under which a person is held. Scope The writ of habeas corpus shall, be, shall extend the uh, to all cases of illegal confinement or detention by which any person is deprived of his liberty or by which the rightful custody of any person is withheld from the person entitled thereto. Thus, the most basic criterion for the issuance of the writ is that the individual seeking such relief be illegally deprived of his freedom of movement or placed under some form of illegal restraint. 
Concomitantly, if a person's liberty is restrained by some legal process, the writ of habeas corpus is unavailing. The writ cannot be used to directly assail a judgment rendered by a competent court or tribunal which, having duly acquired jurisdiction, was not ousted of its jurisdiction through some irregularity in the course of the proceedings. Any restraints which will preclude freedom of action is sufficient. Mistaken Identity a writ of habeas corpus is the proper remedy for a person deprived of liberty through mistaken identity. Habeas corpus is not in the nature of a writ of error, nor intended as substitute for the trial court function. It cannot take the place of appeal, certiorari, or writ of error. The writ cannot be used to investigate and consider questions of error that might be raised relating to procedure or on the merits. The inquiry in habeas corpus proceeding is addressed to the question of whether the proceedings and the assailed order are, for any reason, null and void. The writ is not ordinarily granted where the law provides for other remedies in the regular course and in the absence of exceptional circumstances. When detained person release, release of detained person, whether permanent or temporary, makes the petition for habeas corpus moot. Exception, doctrine of constructive restraint, restraints attached to release which precludes freedom of action, in which case the court can still inquire into the nature of the involuntary restraint. Moot and academic. Court may still pass upon actions for habeas corpus even when the alleged illegal detention has ceased if the action is one that is capable of repetition yet evading review. As a post-conviction remedy, the writ of habeas corpus may also be availed of as a post-conviction remedy when, as a consequence sentence as to circumstance of a judicial proceeding, any of the following exceptional circumstances is attended. 1. There has been a prohibition of a constitutional right resulting in the restraint of a person. 2. The court had no jurisdiction to impose the sentence. 3. The imposed penalty has been excessive, thus voiding the sentence as a success. Indeed, the rule is that when there is a deprivation of a person's constitutional rights, the courts that render the judgment is deemed ousted of its jurisdiction and habeas corpus is the appropriate remedy to assail the legality of its detention. The inquiry on a writ of habeas corpus is addressed not to errors committed by a court within its jurisdiction but to question of whether the proceeding or judgment under which the person has been restrained is a complete nullity. The concern is not merely whether an error has been committed in ordering or holding the petitioner in custody, but whether such error is sufficient to render void the judgment order or process in question. Custody of a minor. Habeas corpus may be resorted into cases where the rightful custody of any person is withheld from the person entitled thereto. Thus, although the writ of habeas corpus ought not to be issued, if the restraint is voluntary, we have held time and again that the said writ is the proper legal remedy to enable parents to regain the custody of a minor children or child, even if the latter be in the custody of a third person of their own free will. It may even be said that in custody cases involving minors, the question of illegal and involuntary restraint of liberty is not the underlying rationale for the availability of the writ as a remedy. Rather, the writ of habeas corpus is prosecuted for the purpose of determining the right of custody over a child. In the absence of a judicial grant or custody to one parent, both parents are still entitled to the custody of their child. Abadilla's cause of action is the deprivation of his right to see his child as alleged in his petition. Hence, the remedy of his corpus is available to him, when not proper, for asserting or vindicating the denial to right to bail, for correcting errors in appreciation of facts or law, 
Once a person detained is duly charged in court, his remedy would be to quash the information or and the warrant of arrest duly issued. Who may grant writ 1. Supreme Court. It may be filed on any day and at any time it shall be effective anywhere in the Philippines. Second, Court of Appeals. It may be filed in the instance authorized by law. It shall be effective anywhere in the Philippines. Third, RTC. It may be filed on any day and at any time it shall be effective within the court's jurisdictional district. Family Courts. Petitions for custody of minors and the issuance of the writ in relation to custody of minors. Sandigan Bayan may issue writs of habeas corpus only if it's, uh, it is uh, aid of its appellate jurisdiction. Contents of the petition. Application for the writ shall be by petition signed and verified either by the party for whose relief is intended or by some person on his behalf and shall set forth a. That the person in whose behalf the application is made is imprisoned or restrained of his liberties. B. The officer or name of the person by whom he is so imprisoned or restrained, or if both are unknown or ascertained, such officer or person may be described by an assumed appellation, and the person who is served with the writ shall be deemed the person intended. C. The place where he is so imprisoned or restrained, if known. D copy of the commitment or cause of detention of such person if it can be procured without impairing the efficiency of the remedy. When writ disallowed or discharged. A. When restraint is by lawful order or process. B. The person alleged to be restrained or of his liberty is in the custody of an officer under process issued by the court or judge or by virtue of a judgment or order of a court of record and said court had jurisdiction to issue the process, render the judgment or make the order. C. Jurisdiction appears after the writ is allowed despite any informality or defect in the process, judgment, or order. D. If it appears that the prisoner was lawfully committed and is plainly and specifically charged in the warrant of commitment uh, with the offense punishable by death. E. Where the person is was behalf, the writ is sought is out on bail. F. Even if the arrest of a person is illegal, the following supervening events may bar release. Issuance of a judicial process, the filing of a complaint before a trial court which issued a whole departure order and denied motion to dismiss and to grant bail. Filing of an information for the offense for which the accused is detained bars the availability of the writ of habeas corpus. Restrictive custody Given that P1 and Pat1 has been placed under restrictive custody, such constitute a valid argument for his continued detention. This court has held that a restrictive custody and monitoring of movements or whereabouts of a police officers under investigation by their superiors is not a form of illegal detention or restraint of liberty. Restrictive custody is at best nominal restraint which is beyond the ambit of habeas corpus. It is neither actual nor effective restraint that would call for the grant of the remedy prayed for. It is a permissible precautionary measure to assure the PNP authorities that the police officers concerned are always accounted for. In passing upon a petition for habeas corpus, a court or judge must first inquire into whether the petitioner is being restrained of his liberty. If he is not, the writ will be refused. Inquiry into the cause of detention will proceed only when such restraint exists. If the alleged cause is thereafter found to be unlawful, then the writ should be granted and the petitioner discharged, needless to state it or if otherwise. Again, the writ will be uh, refused. To whom writ directed? 
In case of imprisonment or restraint by an officer, the rate shall be directed to him and shall command him to have the body of the person restrained of his liberty before the court or judge designated in the rate at a time and place wherein specified. In case of imprisonment or restraint by a person, not an officer, the rate shall be directed to an officer and shall command him to take and have the body of the person restrained of his liberty before the court or judge designated in the writ at a time and place therein specified and to summon the person by whom he is restrained then and there to appear before said court or judge to show cause or show the cause of the imprisonment or restraint. Appeal. Appeals in cases of abias corpus must be within uh, 48 hours from notice of judgment. A person who is set at liberty upon a writ of abias corpus shall not be again imprisoned for the same offense unless by the lawful order or process of a court having jurisdiction of the cause or offense. Retroactive uh, uh, effect of favorable law. Where a decision is already final, the appropriate remedy of an accused to secure release from prison in view of the retroactive effect of a payable law is to file petition for habeas corpus. Habeas corpus and certiorari The writs of habeas corpus and certiorari may be ancillary to each other where necessary to give effect to the supervisory powers of the higher courts. A writ of habeas corpus resists the body and the jurisdictional matters but not the record. A writ of certiorari resists the record but not the body. Hence, a writ of habeas corpus may be used with a writ of certiorari for the purpose of review. However, habeas corpus does not lie where the petitioner has the remedy of appeal or certiorari because it will not be permitted to perform the functions of a writ of error or appeal for the purpose of reviewing mere errors or irregularities in the proceedings of court having jurisdiction over the person in the subject matter. Writ of habeas corpus is not intended as a substitute for the functions of the trial court. In the absence of the exceptional circumstances, the orderly course of trial should be pursued and the usual remedies exhausted before the writ may be invoked. Habeas corpus is not ordinarily available in advance of trial to determine jurisdictional questions that may arise. It has to be an exceptional case for the writ of habeas corpus to be available to an accused before trial. In the absence of special circumstances requiring immediate action, a court will not grant the writ and discharge the prisoner in advance of a determination of this case in court. Writ of habeas corpus in relation to the custody of minors Administrative Memorandum No. 0304-04 by the Supreme Court Applicability Rule applies to petitions for custody of minors and writs of habeas corpus in relation thereto. The rules of court apply supplementarily. In custody cases involving minors, the writ of habeas corpus is prosecuted for the purpose of determining the right of custody over a child. Requisites The grant of the writ depends on the occurrence or the concurrence of the following requisites. 1. That a petitioner has the right of custody over the minor. 2. That the rightful custody over the minor is being withheld from the petitioner by the respondents. And 3. That it is to the best interest of the minor concerned to be in the custody of petitioner and not that of the respondents. Who may file? A verified pet petition for the rightful custody of a minor may be filed by any person claiming such right. Where to file? The petition for custody of minor shall be filed with the family court of the province or city where the petitioner resides or where the minor may be found. Motion to dismiss. 
a motion to dismiss the petition is not allowed except on the ground of lack of jurisdiction over the subject matter or over the parties. Any other ground that might warrant the dismissal of the petition may be raised as an affirmative defense in the answer. The respondent shall file an answer to the petition personally verified by him within five days after service of summons and a copy of the petition. Notice of mandatory pre-trial. Within 15 days after the filing of the answer or the expiration of the period to file answer, the court shall issue an order. 1. Fixing a date for the pre-trial conference. 2. Directing the parties to file and serve their respective pre-trial briefs in such manner as shall ensure receipt thereof uh, by the adverse party at least 3 days before the date of pre-trial. And 3. Requiring the respondent to present the minor before the court. At the pre-trial, the parties may agree on the custody of the minor. If the parties fail to agree, the court may refer the matter to a mediator who shall have five days to effect an agreement between the parties. If the issue is not settled through mediation, the court shall proceed with the pre-trial conference on which occasion it shall consider such other matters as may aid in the prompt disposition of a petition. Effect of failure to appear at the pre-trial if the petitioner fails to appear personally at the pre-trial, the case shall be dismissed unless his counsel or a duly authorized representative appears in court and proves a valid excuse for the non-appearance of the petitioner. If the respondent has filed his answer but fails to appear at the pre-trial, the petitioner shall be allowed to present his evidence ex parte. The court shall then render judgment on the basis of the pleading and the evidence uh, thus presented. Provisional Order Awarding Custody after an answer has been filed or after expiration of the period to file it, the court may issue a provisional order awarding custody of the minor. <coughs> as far as practicable, the following order of preference shall be observed in the award of custody. A. Both parents jointly. B. Either parent taking into account all relevant considerations, especially the choice of the minor over seven years of age and of sufficient discernment unless the parent chosen is unfit. Third, the grandparent or if there are several grandparents, the grandparent chosen by the minor over 7 years of age and of sufficient discernment unless the grandparent chosen is unfit or disqualified. D. The eldest brother or sister over 21 years of age unless he or she is unfit or disqualified. E. The actual custodian of the minor over 21 years of age unless the former is unfit or disqualified or any other person or institution the court may deem suitable to provide proper care and guidance for the minor. As a general rule, the father and the mother shall jointly exercise parental authority over the persons of their common children. However, insofar as illegitimate children are concerned, Article 176 of the Family Code states that illegitimate children shall be under the parental authority of their mother. In the exercise of that authority, mothers are consequently entitled to keep their illegitimate children in their company, and the court will not deprive them of custody, absent any imperative cause showing the mother's unfitness to exercise such authority in care. In addition, Article 213 of the same code provides for the so-called tender age presumption, stating that uh, no child under 7 years of age shall be separated from the mother unless the court finds compelling reasons to order otherwise. Factors to consider in determining custody. In awarding custody, the court shall consider the best interest of the minor and shall give paramount consideration to his material and moral welfare. The best interest of the minor refer to the totality of the circumstances and conditions as are most congenial to the survival, protection, and feelings of security of the minor encouraging to his physical, psychological, and emotional development. It also means the least detrimental available alternative for safeguarding the growth and development of the minor. Temporary Visitation Rights 
the court shall provide in its order awarding provisional custody appropriate visitation rights to the non-custodial parent or parents unless the court finds uh, said parent or parents unfit or disqualified. Hold departure order. The minor child subject of the petition shall not be brought out of the country without prior order from the court while the petition is pending. The court, moto proprio or upon application under oath, may issue ex parte a whole departure order addressed to the Bureau of Immigration and Deportation directing it not to allow the departure of the minor from the Philippines without the permission of the court. Protection order. The court may issue a protection order requiring any person. A. To stay away from the home, school, business, or place of employment of the minor, other parent, or any other party, or from any other specific place designated by the court. B. To cease and desist from harassing, intimidating, or threatening such minor, or the other parent, or any person to whom custody of the minor is awarded. E. C. To refrain from acts of commission or omission that create an unreasonable risk to the health, safety, and welfare of the minor. D. To permit the parent or a party entitled to visitation by a court order or a separation agreement to visit the minor at stated periods. E. To permit a designated party to enter the residence during a specified uh, period of time in order to take personal belongings not contested in a proceeding pending with the family court. And F. To comply with such other orders as are necessary for the protection of the minor. Judgment. After trial, the court shall render judgment awarding the custody of the minor to the proper party considering the best interest of the minor. If it appears that both parties are unfit to have the care and custody of the minor, the court may designate either the paternal or maternal grandparent of the minor or his oldest brother or sister or any reputable person to take charge of such minor or commit him to any suitable home for children. Support in its judgment, the court may order either or both parents to give an amount necessary for the support, maintenance, and education of the minor, irrespective of who may be its custodian. The court may also issue any order that is just and reasonable permitting the parent who is deprived of the care and custody of the minor to visit or have temporary custody. Appeal no appeal from the decision shall be allowed unless the appellant has filed a motion for reconsideration or new trial within 15 days from notice of judgment. An aggrieved party may appeal from the decision by filing a notice of appeal within 15 days from notice of the denial of the motion for reconsideration or new trial and serving a copy thereof on the adverse parties. Summary of Rules A person seeking 1. To change his or her first name 2. To correct clerical or typographical errors in the civil register 3. To change or correct the day and or month of his her or her date of birth. And or four, to change or correct his or her sex where it is patently clear that there was a clerical or typographical error or mistake. Must first file a verified petition with the local civil registry office of the city or municipality where the record being sought to be corrected as change is kept in accordance with the administrative proceedings provided under RA 1948 in relation to RA 10172. A person seeking 1. To change his or her surname or 2. To change both his or her first name and surname may file a petition for change of name under Rule 103 provided that the jurisprudential grounds discussed in Republic versus Hernandez are present. A person seeking substantial cancellations or corrections of entries in the civil registry may file a petition for cancellation of correction of entries under Rule 108 Bartolome versus Republic uh, case. Now, we go to change of name. Rule 103. Scope. A person seeking 1. To change his or her surname or 2. To change both his or her first name and surname may file a petition for change of name under Rule 103. 
grounds. When the name is ridiculous, dishonorable, or extremely difficult to write or pronounce. When the change result as a legal consequence of legitimation or adoption. When the change will avoid confusion. When one has continuously used and been known since childhood by a Filipino name and was unaware of alien parentage. When the change is based on a sincere desire to adopt a Filipino name, to erase signs of former alienates all in good faith and without prejudice to anybody. And when surname causes embarrassment and there is no showing that the desired change of name was for a prudent purpose or that the change of name would prejudice public interest. Take note this case. Although properly surnamed Santos, petitioner prays that he be allowed to change his surname from Santos to Rebilla to avoid confusion to show his sincere and genuine desire to associate himself to Bong Rebilla Jr. and to the Rebillias, to show that he accepts and embraces his true identity and to show his true and genuine love to his biological father. Unfortunately, none of these reasons justify in law the desired change. While petitioner may factually identify and associate with his biological father and his family, he remains to be the legitimate son of Patrick Santos by virtue of the adoption. The latter and not the former is thus his true legal identity, as adoption serves as legal ties between the adoptee and his or her biological parents. There is no basis to allow petitioner to change his name to Revilla simply because he is biologically the son of Bong Revilla and wants to associate himself with the Revilla family. Santos versus Republic case. Nature. The proceedings under one, Rule 103 is also an action in REM, which requires publication of the order issued by the court to afford the state and all other interested parties to oppose the petition. When complied with, the decision binds not only the parties implicated but the whole world. As noticed to all, publication serves to independently bar all who might make objection. It is the publication of such notice that brings in the whole world as a party in the case and vests the court with jurisdiction to hear and decide it. A change of name is a privilege, not a matter of right, addressed to the sound discretion of the court which has a duty to consider carefully the consequences of a change of name and to deny the same unless weighty reasons are shown. Before a person can be authorized to change his name, that is, his true or official name, or that which appears in his birth certificate or is entered in the civil register, he must show proper and reasonable cause or any convincing reason which may justify such change. Cancellation or Correction of Entries in the Civil Registry, Rule 108 A person seeking substantial cancellation or corrections of entries in the Civil Registry may file a petition for cancellation or correction of entries under Rule 108 including change of nationality, age or status. Entries subject to cancellation or correction Upon good and valid grounds, the following entries in the Civil Register may be cancelled or corrected. Births, marriages, Deaths, legal separations, judgments of annulments of marriage, judgments declaring marriages void from the beginning, legitimations, adoptions, acknowledgments of natural children, naturalization, election, loss or recovery of citizenship, civil interdiction, judicial determination of affiliation, voluntary emancipation of a minor, and uh, uh, change of name that uh, is now deleted. Petition seeking a substantial correction of an entry in the civil register must implead as party historic proceeding not only the local civil registrar as petitioner did in the dismissed petition for correction of entries but also all persons who have or claim any interest which would be or which would be affected by the correction. This is required by Section 3, Rule 108 of the Rules of Court. Exceptions 1. 
While there are uh, there may be cases where the court held that a failure to implead and notify the affected or interested parties may be cured by the publication of the notice of hearing, earnest efforts were made by petitioners in bringing to court all possible interested parties. Second, such failure was likewise excused where the interested parties themselves initiated the correction proceedings. Third, when there is no actual or presumptive awareness of the existence of the interested parties. Fourth, when a party is inadvertently, uh, inadvertently left out. Altering petitioners or name from Tanko to Tan would in effect be an adjudication that the first name of his father is indeed Ku and his surname Tan. Clearly, the correction would affect the identity of the petitioner's father. Moreover, there would be a need to correct his mother's name from Trinidad Corpus Tan Ku to Trinidad Corpus Tan. This would require deleting the word Ku from Tan Ku and changing the letter S to Z in Corpus. Following Benemerito, to effect the correction, it would be essential to establish that Trinidad Corpus Tan Ku and Trinidad Corpus Tan refer to the same person. A summary proceeding would certainly be insufficient to effect such substantial corrections. Tan versus Office of the Local Civil Registrar. Now, the change of name is uh, under Rule 103. And uh, on the other hand, the cancellation or correction of entries in the Civil Registrar is under Rule 108. However, there is a new rule that is Clerical Error Law, RA 9048. A person seeking to change his or her first name, to correct clerical or typographical errors in the civil register, to change or correct the day and or month of his or her date of birth, and to change or correct his or her sex, where it is patently clear that there was a clerical or typographical error or mistake, must first file a verified petition with the local civil registry office of the city or municipality, where the record being sought to be corrected or changed is kept, in accordance with the administrative proceeding provided under RA 9048 in relation to RA 101-72. A person may only avail of the appropriate judicial remedies under Rule 103 or Rule 108 in the aforementioned entries after the petition in the administrative proceedings is filed and later denied. RA 9048, April 6, 2001, vis-a-bay RA 101-72, which uh, on August 15, 2012. RA 9048 now governs the change of first name. It vests the power and authority to entertain petitions for change of, of first name to the city or municipal civil registrar or consul general concerned. Under the law, Therefore, jurisdiction over applications for change of first name is now primarily lodged with the aforementioned administrative officers. The intent and effect of the law is to exclude the change of first name from the coverage of Rule 103, which is change of name, and 108, which is cancellation or correction of entries in the civil registry of the rules of court, until and unless an administrative petition for change of name is first filed and subsequently denied, it likewise lays down the corresponding venue, form, and procedure. In sum, the remedy and the proceedings regulating change of first name are primarily administrative in nature, not judicial. RA 9048 also dispense with the need for judicial proceedings in case of any clerical or typographical mistakes in the civil register or changes in first name or nicknames. Thus, a person may now change his or her first name or correct clerical errors in his or her name through administrative proceedings. Rules 103 and 108 only apply 
if the administrative petition has been filed and later denied. Remember, filed and later denied under Rules 103 and 108 may then proceed for the, uh, for the change of name under the new law, Republic Act Number no. 1948. In addition to change of the first name, the day and the month of birth, and the sex of a person may now be changed without judicial proceedings. Republic Act Number no. 10172 clarifies that these changes may now be administratively corrected where it is patently clear that there is a clerical or typographical mistake in the entry. It may be changed by filing a subscribe and sworn affidavit with the local civil registry office of the city or municipality, where the record being sought to be corrected is changed or, uh, or changed is kept. Clerical or typographical error refers to a mistake committed in the performance of clerical work and writing, copying, transcribing, or typing an entry in the civil register that is harmless and innocuous, such as misspelled name or misspelled place of birth, mistake in the entry of day and month in the date of birth, or the sex of the person, or the like, which is visible to the eyes or obvious to the understanding and can be corrected or changed only by reference to other existing records or records. No correction must involve the change of nationality, age, or status of the petitioner. Hence, it must be filed under Rule 108. By qualifying the definition of a clerical typographical error as a mistake, visible to the eyes or obvious to the understanding, the law recognizes that there is a factual determination made after reference to an evaluation of existing documents presented. Thus, corrections may be made even though the error is not typographical if it is obvious to the understanding, even if there is no proof that the name or circumstance in the birth certificate was ever used. Republic versus Galio case. The tests. Misspelled names or missing entries are clerical corrections if they are visible to the eyes or obvious to the understanding and if they may be readily verified by referring to the existing records in the civil register. They must not, however, involve any change in nationality, age, or status. Bartolome versus Republic. In Republic versus Gallio, the court unequivocally held that a prayer to enter a person's middle name is a mere clerical error, which may be corrected by referring to existing records. Thus, it is primarily administrative in nature and should be filed pursuant to RA 1948 as amended. Has in petitioners allegedly misspelled surname? Bartolome to Bartolome, T-H-O to T-O, may be readily corrected by merely referring to the existing records of the civil registrar, such as the surnames of petitioner's parents and immediate family members. The petition should have been filed under RA 1948 and not under Rule 103 of the Rules. It likewise follows that the petition should have been filed with a local civil registry office of the city or municipality, where the record being sought to be corrected or changed is kept in accordance with Section 3 of RA 1948 and not in accordance with the venue provided in Rule 103, Bartolome v. Republic. Change of Name under uh, 1948 While the grounds for change of name under Rule 103 are found in jurisprudence, the grounds for change of first name or nickname are explicitly provided in RA 1948, Section 4. Section 4 Grounds for Change of First Name or Nickname the petition for change of first name or nickname may be allowed in any of the following cases. The petitioner finds the first name or nickname to be ridiculous, tainted with dishonor, or extremely difficult to write or pronounce. The new first name or nickname has been habitually and continuously used by the petitioner and he has been publicly known by the first name or nickname in the community. 
the change will avoid confusion. In the instant case, petitioner seeks to change his first name from Feliciano to Ruben on the ground that he has been using the latter since childhood. Contrary to petitioner's claims, therefore, the change sought is covered by RA 948 and should have been filed with the local civil registry of the city or municipality where the record being sought to be corrected or changed is kept. A person first name cannot be changed on the ground of sex reassignment, Silverio versus Republic. Intersexuality is valid ground for change of name and change of entry of sex in the civil registry where the person is biologically or naturally intersex. The determining factor in his gender classification would be what the individual having reached the age of majority with good reason thinks of his sex. Sexual development in cases of intersex persons makes the gender classification at birth inconclusive. It is a maturity that the gender of such person is fixed. Republic versus Kagandahan Now, let us distinguish Rule 103 from RA 1948 as amended and Rule 108. Under Rule 103, a person seeking to change his or her surname or to change both his or her first name and surname may file a petition for change of name under Rule 103. While in RA 1948, the clerical uh, error uh, uh, law provides that a person seeking to change his over, uh, her or her first name to correct clerical or typographical errors in the civil register, to change or correct the day and or month of his or her date of birth, and or to change or correct his her uh, sex where it is patently clear that there was a clerical or typographical error or mistake. On the other hand, under Rule 108, substantial cancellations or corrections of entries in the civil registry, including change of nationality, age, or status. As to nature of proceedings, Rule 103 is judicial, meaning hearing is necessary, while in RA 1948, uh, it is administrative, no hearing required, and Rule 108 is also judicial that needs hearing, which is necessary, and adversarial since it involves substantial changes and affects the status of individuals. Imagine nationality, age, or status. Who may file? Under Rule 103, a person desiring to change one's name. In RA 1948, any person having direct and personal interest in correction of a clerical or typographical error in an entry in our change of first name or nickname. While Rule 108 is uh, by any person interested in any act, event, order, or decree co concerning civil status of persons which has been recorded in civil register. On initiatory pleading, in Rule 103, signed and verified petition, in RA 1948, it is just a sworn affidavit, and uh, Rule 108, also verified petition. Where to file? Under Rule 103, in the RTC or of province where petitioner has been residing for three years prior to filing, while uh, under RA 1948, in a uh, it is filed in the lo local civil registry office of city or municipality where record being sought to be corrected or changed is kept. If already migrated to another place within the Philippines, local civil registrar or place where interested party is presently residing or domiciled, and on the case of Filipino citizens presently residing or domiciled in foreign countries in the Philippine consulate, while 
uh, in uh, Rule 108, just like Rule 103, it is filed in the Regional Trial Court of City or Province where corresponding civil registry is located. As to coverage, Rule 103, it covers surname, first name, and surname. While uh, R8 uh, or uh, under RA9048, uh, coverage is correction of clerical or typographical errors and change of first name or nickname, day and month and date of birth, sex of a person where it is patently clear that there was a clerical or typographical error or mistake in the entry. While on under Rule 108, the coverage are births, marriage, deaths, legal separations, judgment of annulments of marriage, judgment declaring marriages void from the beginning, legitimations, adoptions, acknowledgments of, of natural children, naturalization, election, loss or recovery of citizenship, civil interdiction, judicial determination, affiliation, voluntary emancipation of a minor, and including change of nationality, age or status. Where to appeal? We have to appeal Rule 103 at the Court of Appeals under Rule 109 uh, in RA 1048, Civil Registrar General, and Rule 108, also Court of Appeals under Rule 109. Now, since we are discussing other writs, we will discuss writ of Amparo as enshrined in Administrative Memorandum Number 07-9-12 by Supreme Court. The petition for a writ of amparo is a remedy available to any person whose right to life, liberty, and security is violated or threatened with violation by an unlawful act or omission of a public official or employee or of a private individual or entity. The writ shall cover extra-legal killings and enforce disappearances or threats thereof. The amparo rule was intended to address the intractable problem of extra-legal killings and enforced disappearances it covers in its present form is confined to these two instances or two threats thereof. Extra-legal killings are killings committed without due process of law, that is, without legal safeguards of judicial proceedings. On the other hand, enforced disappearances are attended by the following characteristics. An arrest, detention, or abduction of a person by a government official or organized group or private individuals acting with the direct or indirect acquiescence of the government, the refusal of the state to disclose the fate of or whereabouts of the person concerned or a refusal to acknowledge the deprivation of liberty which places such persons outside the protection of law. The remedy of the writ of Amparo is an equitable and extraordinary remedy to safeguard the right of the people to life, liberty, security as enshrined in the Constitution. The rule on the writ of Amparo was issued as an exercise of the Supreme Court's power to promulgate rules concerning the protection and enforcement of constitutional rights. It aims to address concerns such as, among others, extrajudicial killings and enforced disappearances. Nature the right of Amparo serves both preventive and curative rules in addressing the problem of extralegal killings and enforced disappearances. It is preventive in that it breaks the expectation of impunity in the commission of these offenses. It is curative in that it facilitates the subsequent punishment of perpetrators as it will inevitably yield leads to subsequent investigation and action. In the long run, the goal of both the preventive and curative rules is to deter the further commission of extra-legal killings and enforce disappearances. 
The remedy provides rapid judicial relief as it partakes as a summary proceeding that requires only substantial evidence to make the appropriate reliefs available to the petitioner. It is not an action to determine criminal guilt requiring proof beyond reasonable doubt or liability for damages requiring preponderance of evidence or administrative responsibility requiring substantial evidence that will require full and exhaustive proceedings. Government involvement, indispensable. For the protective writ of Amparo to issue in enforced disappearances cases, allegations in proof that the persons subject thereof are missing are not enough. It must also be shown by the required quantum of proof that their disappearance was carried out by or with the authorization, support or acquiescence of the government or a political organization, followed by a refusal to acknowledge the same or give information on the fate or whereabouts of said missing persons. We are aware that under Section 1 of Administrative Memorandum Number no. 7-9-12 of the Supreme Court, a writ of amparo may lie against a private individual or entity. But even if the person sought to be held accountable or responsible in an amparo petition is a private individual or entity, still, government involvement in the disappearance remains an indispensable element. This hallmark of state participation differentiates an enforced disappearance case from an ordinary case of a missing person. In this case, it is undisputed that petitioners' amparo petition before the RTC does not allege any case of extrajudicial killing and or enforced disappearance or any threats thereof in the senses above described. Their petition is merely anchored on a broad invocation of respondents purported violation of their right to life and security carried out by private individuals without any showing of direct or indirect government participation. Thus, it is apparent that their amparo petition falls outside the purview of AM number 7-9-12 and perforce must fail. Applicability to property rights The writ of amparo does not envisage the protection of concerns that are purely property or commercial in nature. Applicability of right to travel The writ of amparo does not protect the right to travel where the petitioner failed to establish that his right to travel was impaired in the manner and to the extent that it amounted to a serious violation of his right to life, liberty, and security, the writ of amparo will not lie. Availability to prisoners Considering that the definition of enforced disappearances does not make a distinction between abduction of private citizens or abduction of convicted national inmates, the remedy of the writ of amparo may be available even to convicted national inmates as long as the alleged abduction was made for the purpose of placing the national inmate outside the protection of the law. Writ of amparo cannot be issued in cases where the alleged threat to life, liberty, and security has ceased. Elements constituting enforced disappearance that there been an arrest, detention, abduction, or any form of deprivation of liberty that it be carried out by or with the authorization, support, or acquiescence of the state or political organization that it be followed by the state or political organization's refusal to acknowledge or give information on the faith or whereabouts of the person subject of the amparo petition and that the intention for such refusal is to remove subject person from the protection of the law for a prolonged period of time. Sinoma file, Womi file. The petition may be filed by the aggrieved party or by any qualified person or entity in the following order. Any member of the immediate family, namely the spouse, children, and parents of the aggrieved party. Any ascendant, descendant, or collateral relative of the aggrieved party within the fourth civil degree of consequently or affinity in the fault of those mentioned in the preceding paragraph. 
any concerned citizen, organization, association, or institution if there is no known member of the immediate family or relative of the aggrieved party. The filing of a petition by the aggrieved party suspends the right of all other authorized parties to file similar petitions. Likewise, the filing of the petition by an authorized party on behalf of the aggrieved party suspends the right of all others observing the order established in. Where to file? Dilma file. The petition may be filed on any day and at any time with the regional trial court of the place where the threat, act, or omission was committed or any of its elements occurred or with the Sadigan Bayan, the Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court, or any justice of such courts, the writ shall be enforceable anywhere in the Philippines. Prohibited pleadings and motions. Motion to dismiss. Motion for extension of time to file return of position, affidavit, position paper, and other pleadings. Dilatory motion for postponement. Motion for a bill of particulars. Counterclaim or close claim. Third party complaint. Reply. Motion to declare respondent and default. Intervention, Memorandum, Motion for Reconsideration of Interlocutory Orders or Interim Relief Orders and Petition for Certiorari Mandamus or Prohibition against any interlocutory order. Interim reliefs available to Petitioner and Respondent. Temporary Protection Order. The court, justice, or judge upon motion or proto proprio may order that the petitioner or the aggrieved party and any member of the immediate family be protected in a government agency or by an accredited person or private institution capable of keeping and securing their safety. Inspection order. The court, justice, or judge upon verified motion and after due hearing may order any person in possession or control of a designated land or other property to permit entry for the purpose of inspecting, measuring, surveying, or photographing the property in any real bad object or operation thereon. If the motion is opposed on the ground of national security or of the privileged nature of the information, the court, justice, or judge may conduct a hearing in chambers to determine the merit of the opposition. The movement must show that the inspection order is necessary to establish the right of the aggrieved party alleged to be threatened or violated. Production order. The court, justice, or judge upon verified motion and after due hearing may order any person in possession, custody, or control of any designated documents, papers, books, accounts, letters, photographs, objects, or tangible things, or objects in digitized or electronic form which constitute or contain evidence relevant to the petition of the return to produce and permit their inspection, copying, or photographing by or on behalf of the movement. The motion may be opposed on the ground of national security or of the privileged nature of the information, in which case the court, justice, or judge may conduct a hearing in chambers to determine the merit of the, uh, of the opposition. Witness Protection Order The court, justice, or judge, upon motion or moto proprio, may refer the witnesses to the Department of Justice for admission to the Witness Protection, Security, and Benefit Program pursuant to RA 6981. Availability of Interim Reliefs of uh, or uh, to respondent upon verified motion of the respondent and other due hearing the court justice or judge may issue an inspection order or production order institution of separate actions this rule shall not preclude the filing of separate criminal civil or administrative actions effect of filing of criminal action when a criminal action has been commenced no separate petition for the writ shall be filed the reliefs under the writ shall be available by motion in the criminal case Consolidation. When a criminal action is filed subsequent to the filing of a petition for the writ, the latter shall be consolidated with the criminal action. 
when a criminal action and civil actions are filed subsequent to the petition for a writ of amparo, the latter shall be consolidated with the criminal action. Quantum of proof. The parties shall establish their claims by substantial evidence. The respondent who is a private individual or entity must prove that ordinary diligence as required by applicable laws, rules, and regulations was observed in the performance of duty. The respondent who is a public official or employee must prove that extraordinary diligence as required by applicable laws, rules, and regulations was observed in the performance of duty. The respondent, public official, or employee cannot invoke the presumption that official duty has been regularly performed to evade responsibility or liability. Here's the evidence which is generally considered inadmissible under the rules of evidence may be considered in a writ of amparo proceeding if required by the unique circumstances of the case. That is the totality of the obtaining circumstances. Now, we go to writ of abias data. EM number 08-1-16, Supreme Court. The writ of abias dita is a remedy available to any person whose right to privacy in life, liberty, or security is violated or threatened by an unlawful act or omission of a public official or employee or of a private individual or entity engaged in the gathering, collecting, or storing of data or information regarding the person, family, home, and correspondence of the grieved party. The writ of abias data is an independent and summary remedy designed to protect the image, privacy, honor, information, and freedom of information of an individual and to provide a forum to enforce one's right to the truth and to informational privacy. It seeks to protect a person's right to control information regarding oneself, particularly in instances in which such information is being collected through unlawful means in order to achieve unlawful ends. It must be emphasized that in order for the privilege of the writ to be granted, there must be exist a nexus between the right to privacy on the one hand and the right to life, liberty, or security on the other. Where the petitioner was not able to sufficiently allege that his right to privacy in life, liberty, or security was or would be violated through the supposed reproduction and threatened dissemination of the subject's sex video, the petition is dismissible, as the rules and existing jurisprudence on the matter uh, evoke alleging and eventually probing the nexus between one's privacy rights to the cogent rights to life, liberty, or security are crucial in abias data cases, so much so that a failure on either account certainly renders abias data petition dismissible. The state interest of dismantling PEGs for outweighs the alleged intrusion on the private life of Gamboa, especially when the collection and forwarding by the PNP of information against her was pursuant to a lawful mandate. Therefore, the privilege of a writ of abias data must be denied. Gamboa versus Chan case. Extent of relief. As an independent and summary remedy to protect the right to privacy, especially the right to informational privacy, the proceedings for the issuance of the rate of abias data does not entail any finding of criminal, civil, or administrative culpability. If the allegations in the petition are proven through substantial evidence, then the court may grant access to the database or information, enjoin the act complained of, or in case the database or information contains erroneous data or information, order its deletion, destruction, or rectification. It will not issue to protect purely property or commercial concerns, nor when the grounds invoked in support of the petition thereof are vague or vague and doubtful. Availability to prisoners. The right of a convicted national inmate to his or her privacy runs counter to the state interest of preserving order and security inside our prison systems. There is no longer any reasonable expectation of privacy when one is being monitored and guarded at all hours of the day. 
unless there is compelling evidence that a public employee engaged in the gathering, collecting, or storing of data or information on the convicted national inmate has committed an unlawful act which threatens the life of the inmate. A petition for the writ of habeas data cannot prosper. Who may file? Any agreed party may file a petition for the writ of habeas data. However, in cases of extra-legal killings and enforced disappearances, the petition may be filed by A. Any member of the immediate family of the agreed party, namely the spouse, children, and parents, or B. Any ascendant, descendant, or collateral relative of the agreed party within the possible degree of consequentity or affinity in the fault of those mentioned in the preceding paragraph. Allegations Section 6 of the Rule on the Writ of Abias Data requires that petition for the writ must contain the following allegation. The personal circumstances of the petitioner and the respondent, the manner the right to privacy is violated or threatened, and how it affects the right to life, liberty, or security of the aggrieved party, the actions and recourses taken by the petitioner to secure the data or information, the location of the files, registers, or databases, the government office, and the person in charge in possession or in control of the data or information it known. The relief prayed for, which may include the updating, rectification, suppression, or destruction of the database or information or files kept by the respondent. And in case of threats, the relief may, be, may include a prayer for an order enjoining the act complained of and such other relevant reliefs as are just and equitable. Again, uh, prohibited pleadings and motion the same as in the writ of amparo. When defenses may be heard in chambers, hearing in chambers may be conducted where the respondent invokes the defense that the release of the data or information in question shall compromise national security or state secrets, or when the data or information cannot be divulged to the public due to its nature or privileged character. Quantum of proof. An indispensable requirement before the privilege of the writ may be extended is the showing at least by substantial evidence of an actual or threatened violation of the right to privacy in life, liberty, or security of the victim. Judgment. The court shall render judgment within 10 days from the time of petition is submitted for decision. Appeal. Any party may appeal from the final judgment or order to the Supreme Court under Rule 45, five working days from the date of notice of the adverse judgment. Consolidation. When a criminal action is filed subsequent to the filing of petition for the writ, the latter shall be consolidated with the criminal action. And when criminal action and a separate civil action are filed subsequent to a petition for a writ of habeas data, the petition shall be consolidated with the criminal action. Institution of a separate action The filing of a petition for the writ of habeas data shall not preclude the filing of separate criminal, civil, or administrative actions. Effect of filing criminal action. When a criminal action has been commenced, no separate petition for the writ shall be filed. The relief under the writ shall be available to an aggrieved party by motion in the criminal case. Now, let's go to the rules of procedure on environmental cases under Administrative Memorandum Number 9-6-8 by the Supreme Court. Temporary Environmental Protection Order or TEPO. If it appears from the verified complaint with a prayer for the issuance of an environmental protection order or EPO that a matter is of extreme urgency and the applicant will suffer grave injustice and irreparable injury, the executive judge of the multiple sala court before RAPOL or the presiding judge of a single sala court, as the case may be, may issue ex parte a TEPO, effective for only 72 hours from date of the receipt of the TEPO by the party or person enjoined. Within said period, the court where the case is assigned shall conduct a summary hearing to determine whether the TEPO or uh, 
the uh, environmental protection uh, or temporary environmental protection order uh, by the party or person enjoined within said period the court where the case is assigned shall conduct a summary hearing to determine whether the typo may be extended until the termination of the case. The court where the case is assigned shall periodically monitor the existence of acts that are the subject matter of the typo, even if issued by the executive judge, and may leave the same at any time as circumstances may warrant. The applicant shall be exempted from the posting of a ban for the issuance of a typo. Dissolution of typo. The typo may be dissolved if it appears uh, after hearing that its issuance or continuance would cause irreparable damage to the party or person enjoined, while the applicant may be fully compensated for such damages as he may suffer and subject to the posting of a sufficient bond by the party or person enjoined. The grounds for motion to dissolve a TEPO shall be supported by affidavits of the party or person enjoined, which the applicant may oppose also by affidavits. Second, Writ of Continuing Mandamos Writ of Continuing Mandamos is a writ issued by a court in an environmental case directing any agency or instrumentality of the government or officer thereof to perform an act or series of acts decreed by final judgment which shall remain effective until judgment is fully satisfied. Road Sharing Principle What the petitioners are seeking to compel is not the performance of a ministerial act but a discretionary act. The manner of implementation of the road sharing principle clearly petitioners preferred specific course of action that is the bifurcation of roads to the boat for all weather sidewalk and bicycling and filipino made transport vehicles to implement the road sharing principle finds no textual basis in law or executive issuances for it to be considered an act enjoined by law as a duty leading to the necessary conclusion that the continuing mandamus prayed for six not in the implementation of an environmental law, rule or regulation, but to control the exercise of discretion of the executive as to how the principle enunciated in an executive issuance relating to the environment is best implemented. Clearly, the determination of the means to be taken by the executive implementing or actualizing any stated legislative or executive policy relating to the environment requires the use of discretion. Absent as showing that the executive is guilty of gross abuse of discretion, manifest injustice, or palpable excess of authority, the general rule applies that discretion cannot be checked via this petition for continuing mandamus, hence the continuing mandamus cannot issue. Sigubia versus the Climate Change Commission When available, when any agency or instrumentality of the government or officer unlawfully neglects the performance of an act which the law specifically enjoined as a duty resulting from an office, trust, or station in connection with the enforcement or violation of an environmental law, rule, or regulation or right therein, or unlawfully excludes another from the use or enjoyment of such right, and there is no other plain, speedy, and adequate remedy in the ordinary course of law. Note. It is not necessary that there should have first been a previous judgment in a separate case finding the respondents to have violated an environmental law before the rate of continuing mandamus may be issued. Where to file? The petition shall be filed with the RTC exercising jurisdiction over the territory where the actionable neglect or omission occurred or with the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court. Party in interest. The petitioners failed to prove direct or personal injury arising from acts attributable to the respondents to be entitled to the writ. While the requirements of standing had been deliberalized in environmental cases, the general rule of real party in interest applies to a petition for continuing mandamus. 
si Gubiah versus the Climate Change Commission. The court agrees with the petitioner's petition. The RPEC did liberalize the requirements on standing allowing the piling of citizen suit for the enforcement of rights and obligations under environmental laws. This has been confirmed by this court's rulings in Arigo versus SWIFT, the International Service for the Acquisition of Agri-Biotech Applications Incorporated versus Greenpeace Southeast Asia Philippines. However, it bears no, uh, na, uh, noting that there is a difference between a petition for the issuance of a writ of kalikasan wherein it is sufficient that the person filing represents the inhabitants prejudiced by the environmental damage subject of the writ and a petition for the issuance of a writ of continuing mandamos which is only available to one who is personally aggrieved by the unlawful act or omission. Judgment If warranted, the court shall grant the privilege of the writ of continuing mandamos requiring respondent to perform an act or series of acts until the judgment is fully satisfied. Next, grant such other reliefs as may be warranted resulting from the wrongful or illegal acts of the respondent and require the respondent to submit periodic reports detailing the progress and execution of judgment. Lastly, writ of kalikasan. Under the RPEC or RPEC, the writ of kalikasan is an extraordinary remedy covering environmental damage of such magnitude that will prejudice the life, health, or property of inhabitants in two or more cities or provinces. It is designed for a narrow but special purpose to accord a stronger protection for environmental rights, aiming, among others, to provide a speedy and effective resolution of a case involving the violation of one's constitutional right to a helpful and balanced ecology that transcends political and territorial boundaries and to address the potentially exponential nature of large-scale ecological threats. At the very least, the magnitude of the ecological problems contemplated under the RPIC satisfies at least one of the exceptions to the rule on hierarchy of courts, as when direct resort is allowed where it is dictated by public welfare. Given that the RPIC allows direct resort to this court, it is ultimately within the court's discretion whether or not the, uh, to accept petitions brought directly before it, Sigubia versus the Climate Change Commission. Thus, a writ of kalikasan is an extraordinary remedy that covers environmental damages, the magnitude of which transcends both political and territorial boundaries. The damage must be caused by an unlawful act or omission of a public official, public employee, or private individual, or entity. It must affect the inhabitants of at least two cities or provinces. Requisites For a writ of kalikasan to issue, the following requisites must concur. 1. There is an actual or threatened violation of the constitutional right to balance and helpful ecology. 2. The actual or threatened violation arises from an unlawful act or omission of a public official or employee or private individual or entity. And third, The actual or threatened violation involves or will lead to an environmental damage of such magnitude as to prejudice the life, health, or property of inhabitants in two or more cities or provinces. It is well settled that a party claiming the privilege for the issuance of a writ of kalikasan has to show that a law, rule, or regulation was violated or would be violated. In this case, apart from repeated invocation of the constitutional right to health and to a balance in helpful ecology and bare allegations that their right was violated, the petitioners failed to show that public respondents are guilty of any unlawful act or omission that constitute a violation of the petitioner's right to a balanced and helpful ecology. While there can be no disagreement with the general propositions, but forth 
or put forth by the petitioners on the correlation of air quality and public health. Petitioners have not been able to show that respondents are guilty of violation or neglect of environmental laws that causes or contributes to bad air quality. Notably, apart from bare allegations, petitioners were not able to show that respondents failed to execute any of the laws petitioners cited. In fact, apart from adducing expert testimony on the adverse effects of air pollution on public health, the petitioners did not go beyond mere allegation in establishing the unlawful acts or omissions on the part of the public respondents that have a casual link or reasonable connection to actual or threatened violation of the constitutional right to a balanced and helpful ecology of the magnitude contemplated under the rules as required of petitions of this nature. When available, it is a remedy available a. to a natural or juridical person, entity authorized by law, people's organization, NGO, or any public interest group accredited by or registered with any government agency b. on behalf of person whose constitutional right to a balanced and helpful ecology is violated or threatened with violation c. by unlawful act or omission of a public official or employee or private individual or entity d. Involving environmental damage to such magnitude as to prejudice the life, health, or property of inhabitants in two or more cities or provinces. Burden of proof. It is well settled that a party claiming the privilege for the issuance of a writ of agricasan has to show that a law, rule, or regulation was violated or would be violated. Where to file? The petition shall be filed with the Supreme Court or any of the stations of the Court of Appeals. Prohibited uh, pleadings and motions. The following pleadings and motions are prohibited. Motion to dismiss, for extension of time, to file return, for postponement, for a bill of particulars, counterclaim or cross-claim, third-party complaint, reply, and motion to declare respondent in default. Discovery measures. A party may file a verified motion for the following reliefs. Ocular inspection. The motion must show that an ocular inspection order is necessary to establish the magnitude of the violation or the threat as to prejudice the life, health, or property of inhabitants in two or more cities or provinces. It shall state in detail the place or places to be inspected. It shall be supported by affidavits of witnesses having personal knowledge of the violation of the threatened violation or environmental law. Production or inspection of documents or things. The motion must show that a production order is necessary. To establish the magnitude of the violation of a threat as to prejudice the life, health, or property of inhabitants in two or more cities or provinces. Reliefs that may be granted under the writ. A. Directing the respondent to permanently cease and desist from committing acts or neglecting the performance of a duty in violation of environmental laws resulting in environmental destruction or damage. B. Directing the respondent to protect, preserve, rehabilitate, or restore the environment. C. Directing the respondent to monitor the compliance with the decisions and orders of the court. D. Directing the respondent to make periodic reports on the execution of the final judgment. And E. Such other reliefs which relate to the right of the people to a balanced and helpful ecology or to the protection, preservation, rehabilitation, or restoration of the environment. An award of damages to individual petitioners is not allowed as a relief. Appeal. Any party may appeal to the Supreme Court under Rule 45 of the Rules of Court within 15 days from notice of the adverse judgment or denial of motion for reconsideration. Note, the appeal may raise question of 